Tonight I would like to speak to you a little further on uh, a theme that I had spoken to you several weeks be ago before we came to the Christmas season, and the portion is over in the Lamentations, the third chapter. Lamentations, the third chapter. I've spoken to you about the first half of the passage, which runs from the 15th verse to the 33rd verse, and also with the thought of a key verse, uh, let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord in Lamentation 3.40. Now let me read the uh, whole portion, and then I will talk with you for the few minutes this evening as we finish the Lord's day. <clears throat> he hath filled me with bitterness. He hath made me drunken with wormwood. He hath also broken my teeth with gravel stones, and he hath covered me with ashes. It's difficult when the heart is under the chastening hand of God. The feelings are so well expressed here. He hath broken my teeth with gravel stones. He hath covered me with ashes. And thou hast removed my soul far off from peace. And, of course, the first thing that God gives to those that love him, that come to Christ the Savior, is his peace. And the soul is removed far off from peace. If you don't have peace tonight in your soul, it's because you are far off from God. God is love. God is peace. God is joy. God is contentment. We could list all the things that the Spirit is. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience. We could go down the whole gamut. God is all of these things to the human soul. And the only chance of us expressing these things in our daily lives are as our lives are right with God. So that uh, when he says that his soul is far removed from peace, uh, he's telling us that his soul is far off from God, because there cannot be peace in the breast while there is a distance between the soul and God. Our rest is in Christ. We rest in him. It says that Israel did not enter into the rest of God because of unbelief. And because we do not believe the promises of God, we often suffer the lack of peace and the lack of rest. May I say this, an absolute faith in the promises of God brings peace to the soul. Otherwise, God fails in his promises. 
and he cannot fail. We will fail. It is our not understanding fully, not grasping, not holding on to the promises of God. So the first thing we should do when we lack peace is to reestablish the lines with God and make sure that our lines are proper, that we're in that proper relationship to the Lord. And I said my, uh, then he says, I forget prosperity. Uh, we never appreciate what we have, you see. He forgot prosperity. Prosperity doesn't mean anything if your soul is far off from God. If we were to consider prosperity in the monetary uh, realm, all the money, you know this yourself, money doesn't make you happy, that's all of selling it. I forgot about my prosperity because I didn't have peace. A peaceful soul enjoys God to the utmost and enjoys their prosperity in that they know how to use it. If prosperity is used properly, it's to the benefit of our God, you say. I never would, for instance, I pray for, with businessmen many times in my study and I make it very clear that I'm not praying for their prosperity unless their prosperity is to be shared with God. I think that's simple. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm merely saying that if the prosperity is not to be shared, then it is not deserved. And to ask God to prosper us without saying, with that which thou dost prosper me, I will share with thee, doesn't mean a thing. So when we pray together in my study, uh, we pray that way. Lord, prosper this man provided that thou dost prosper through him. And so he forgets prosperity here in Lamentations. The uh, prophet uh, just uh, has forgotten all about it because peace has been removed from his soul. Isn't, isn't it strange how that is? Uh, when peace is removed, I don't think anybody grabs their bank book, do they? You don't go and look down a list of stocks and bonds to see if you can get your peace back, do you? Isn't it strange? Somehow, you know, the dollar is so big and suddenly when you've lost your peace or adversity comes, the dollar doesn't mean a thing. And so the peace that we receive from God, uh, all the prosperity in the world will be forgotten if it's removed from our soul and we'll be just miserable. And I said, my strength and my hope is perished from the Lord, uh, because it looked, looking at the dark side of life, uh, after these things happened to him, it looked as though everything's finished, and that complete despair sends, descends upon the soul. And I think, of course, this is a necessity in the child of God's heart, that if he is not at peace with the Lord, complete despair descends upon him. I would expect that God would do this with his own child. Whom, since whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son. So I would assume from this, from the promises of God, that if there's not peace in the soul toward God, this means that the heart is not right with God as a son, and therefore 
the Lord will chasten his own son and bring despair into the soul until we cry out to God to restore unto us the joy of our salvation. That's what David did, you see. We reach the bottom, and then we seek that which is the only thing that can give us the peace of heart that we need so much. Then he says, remembering mine affliction and my misery and the wormwood and the gall, because it seemed as though everything had perished before the Lord, his strength and his hope. My soul hath him still in remembrance and is humbled in me. I would wish I could say that for everyone, you know. I really do. I wish I could say that verse for everyone, that you remember the problems and the burdens and the trials and you learned. I wish I could say it for myself. That when we go through problems and trials and when these things happen in our life and we lose the peace, that we won't forget and get ourselves back into the same old ruts again and find ourselves down to the same old despairs again and have to come back again. You know, this continual process of up and down and up and down Christianity. And so he says here, re remembering my affliction and my misery and the worm with the gold, my soul hath them still in remembrance. I don't forget it, and is humbled in me about this whole thing as I look back. 21st verse, this I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. It is of the Lord's mercies, this is what he recalls, that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning, Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul, therefore will I hope in him. And now the 25th verse. We are up to here, and I, the comments I made just before here had to do with the portion we've already studied. You know, it's a, I say this quickly, but I, I don't know whether you've, of course you wouldn't feel the way I do because I'm the, I'm the preacher, I'm the pastor. But it doesn't matter how many times I will read a portion of Scripture. When I go over it again, the thoughts are still as blessed and precious as they were the last time. It doesn't make a bit of difference. You know, you, you, you just rejoice in them. You could repeat them and repeat them in your heart and you, and you just rejoice in the Lord, you know, because it's the Lord's Word. And his, his word is, is such a benefit to our hearts. It feeds our souls. And so now as we go to this 25th verse, he says, The Lord is, is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. He's good to those that wait for him. May I say this? There are times for waiting and there are times for seeking. We wait on the Lord, if I can put it this way, we wait on the Lord when our heart is right with God and there's nothing between him and thee. Then we wait. Be still and know that I am God and there is none else. And we wait. For our hearts are right with God and we wait for him to undertake for us. We go to him. Our sins are confessed. 
our sins are forsaken as much as within us is, we intend not to commit the same sin again. May I say this? No confession should lack that in it. As much as in me is, I intend by the power of the Spirit of God not to commit that sin again. I don't believe in the tight confession which I used to have in Romanism when I went to the priest and merely confessed my sins and said a few words of penance at the altar and got up and went out and came back next Saturday, confessed the sins and went up to the altar and came back. This repetition, repetition, repetition. I believe that in every single confession there must be that in the heart with all the power that dwells in me by the Spirit of God, I say to thee with my face shining unto thee, because thou dost shine upon me, I intend not to do this sin again. That's important. Very important. And so there are times to wait for the Lord when we have come to him clean, and here, the patriarch of old has said that the Lord is good unto them that wait for him. And how blessed this is as we wait upon him. But then there are times when we must seek him when we've been afar off from God. Then you have to go after him. Then, and I... And I Unfortunately, I would have to say that uh, I think that most times uh, we have to seek him and not wait for him because so few of us are in the proper position before God with sins confessed and a life shining, young people, older people, with a life shining for God, proper position with God so that rather than having to seek him, they that seek me shall find me. He will be faithful, you will find him, but to the born-again Christian, beloved, there should be not be that necessity to go out and seek after him. The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth, we're told. He dwelleth within our breast, the Holy Spirit. To think that we as Christians who have been born again, whose bodies have become the temple of the living God, that we should seek him who dwells in the temple and have to look for him. Does it seem possible? Should it not be rather for us to wait for him? Just wait. Wait upon the Lord. Remember that portion where it says in Chronicles, if my people which are called by my name will turn from their wicked ways and seek. See? What are they doing? They're turning from wicked ways. Then they're going to have to seek him because the Lord cannot be part of the wickedness. And so there has to be the seeking time when we are afar off from God, and then the waiting time, when we are within his will, 
when you feel that your heart is in the proper condition with God and you wait upon him to answer your prayers, your petitions, your needs. What are your needs tonight? Listen, is there anyone doesn't have needs in the congregation? And I don't care what your age is because each one, as far as God is concerned, is so individual. I had said to my sons the other night, I said, the feeling in my heart is this, that my faith in Christ is vertical and to him I am the world as though there was none else. And the most wonderful thing is, as he looks at each one that way, I am everything to him. That is how great his love is for me. How do I know this? As the Father hath loved the Son, so does the Father love us. This is what Ernie read tonight, you see. The very thing, the same love. Father, with the love which thou hast loved me, thou dost love them. Was Jesus everything to his father? Are you everything to your father in heaven? Of course you are. I hope you don't look at yourself as part of the collective body of Franklin Avenue Baptist Church. Look at yourself for what you are. You are an individual body, a part of the body of Jesus Christ, member of his flesh and of his bones. And he's the head of the body and he's concerned with you. You're part of him. And so there is that deep and holy understanding within us that he loves us so, his love is intent upon us. And so we wait for him when we are in that position where we can depend completely and trust because our lives are clean. If our lives are not right, then we must seek after him. So there's a seeking time and there is a waiting time. Then in the 26th verse, notice it says, It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. It's good for a man to hope and quietly wait. Now, you can't have hope in your heart unless your faith is strong. Now abideth these three, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. But faith and hope are there, you see. Faith in the cross of Christ in the past, all sins taken care of. Love in the present toward the brethren and toward Jesus in all of its fullness and hope in the future that Christ is coming soon. And so there is this tremendous joy within our breasts that we hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. I, I'm so glad it has salvation of the Lord here because sometimes people are looking to someone else to give them safety and security. Man today is looking for someone to save him out of his dismal outlook as he looks out upon the world. He's looking for somebody else. He's looking for a president that's right or 
a ruler that's right or a king that's right. That's why the world is set for the coming of Antichrist, because everybody's looking for somebody somehow that can get this world straightened out. Now, the article I read to you this morning from Look Magazine indicates that this is the thought. The world is one big family. It will need not the Papa of Rome, which he is called, but the Papa would be the great ruler, you see, that would sort of bind together all humanity. And when Antichrist comes, he'll not come in some satanic form. He will come with great benefits to the human race without Jesus Christ and will seek the very worship of man for himself. So the world will be set for a man, a man to come, and a man to offer a better outlook. The world has a sad outlook right now. As men look around them, they listen to the scientists. You've seen it in the newspapers in the last week. It seems, you know, when you approach a new year, all the scientists all begin to write their articles on what 1970 holds, and they're not very happy. Tonight I was listening, just as I left uh, someone on television and said one of the big scientists in Harvard had said that between pollution and the atomic bomb, there won't be anything left in five years. Well, you know, when scientists get this, isn't it funny? In even the world, they hear these things and they shake it off as though it's nothing. But not me. I'm a Christian, and I love Christ, and I see everything they say is just part of the prophetic utterances of God. He's saying, now listen, you see the signs, you know the seasons, you can discern them. You ought to see the signs of the times. Even men are speaking about the fact the world can't last long. What makes you think that I'm not coming soon? If man's reached the point where, why, it, listen, if, if the pollution of, uh, of three billion people is, is practically corrupting the world, what do we do with six billion? Someone said they're going to use the moon for a garbage dump. Well, it'll be a costly one, that's about all I can say, to send it up there all the time. But imagine, I mean, this is the kind of a world we're facing in this present day. And man is looking for someone who will offer him a salvation. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord, you see. The trouble is, men are looking to someone else, not to the Lord. They still, with all of their past history, with all of the failures of Rome, of Israel, of Noah's day, of Lot's day, of all of the past, still man feels that somehow, through some evolutionary process, he's going to reach the point where all will be pure and righteous and holy. And in the very process of saying so, he is more and more bringing debauchery into the life of man. Hard to believe, isn't it? The history of the past means nothing to man. We're supposed to learn from the history of the past. What have we learned? What have we learned? We see conditions in the world today tragically bad. Man is looking for a salvation, but he wants a salvation made for man where he won't have to worry about God and God's judgment. 
Well, I'm very sorry, beloved, but whether people believe in God or don't believe in God, they'll face the judgment of God. Makes not one bit of difference. I think some people have an idea that as long as you don't believe, you don't have to face God's judgment. Well, boy, if you can do that, you'd be pretty good to get yourself out of the hands of God. It is appointed to man, all men, once to die, and then the judgment. You can't miss. You can't miss. And so the salvation of the Lord is very, very important. It is good for a man to hope and to wait for the salvation of the Lord. And then it says, it's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Now, if I could just hold there for a minute or two as we close, because I think this is so important. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Young people, what can I say to you but that to bear the yoke of Christ is everything. He says that, doesn't he? He says over in Matthew, the 11th chapter, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And you know, notice what it says here in Lamentation. It's good for a youth to take the yoke of Christ upon him, the yoke of God upon him. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now that reason it's good that youth take the yoke of Christ upon them, is that the habits of our earliest years are those that follow us to the grave. Those that memory ever cast upon a screen. Train up a child in the way he shall go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. This is God's word. But today, science and psychiatrists all say the child up till it's four years of age now, whatever it receives of love from the mother and father, of training from the mother and father, of all the things, those things will have the great weight upon their lives as they grow older. So God says, I want you to take my yoke upon you while you are young. Now, the yoke of Christ is a wonderful yoke. It breaks the shackles of sin. And then, like all yokes, remember, it places a restraining hand upon you. A yoke places a restraint upon the animals who are under the yoke. It's an amazing thing about oxen. You know, they have the yoke over them, and this is undoubtedly the picture that was given in those days. The oxen have the yoke. And you see them pulling behind them this heavy wagon loaded with goods. And it looks to you as though it is a burdensome thing. But because the yoke is on the oxen, the pulling is quite easy. Without the yoke, they couldn't possibly do it. 
It would be an impossible thing. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You have an idea that when you put the yoke of Christ upon you, that this is going to be difficult for you. You don't know, you know, people say, well, now, if I come to Christ, I'll have to give up this, and I'll have to do this and do that, and how will I be able to live the Christian life? And Jesus says, put my yoke upon you. Come learn of me. I'm meek and lowly of heart. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Put it upon you and see. And so the yoke of Christ is a restraining power upon us. Salvation is free. But, beloved, it makes us free men. But Christ's yoke is put upon us. Remember that. It does not make us free men to do as we please. It makes us free men under the restraining power of the yoke of Jesus Christ. What will that yoke mean to you Beloved, it may mean that you'll be hated of all people. They hated Jesus, it says. He says, they hated me, they'll also hate you. The yoke of Christ might mean that you're hated in the school you go to. I don't know. It might mean that in the neighborhood you're living in, you're hated. Not like Christ was hated. He was hated unto death. But that hatred might be in a different way entirely in your life. It might be, young person, that they will ignore you completely. That their hatred will be borne out in an absolute ignoring of you and looking at you as though to say, you've lost your mind. You don't know what you're talking about. Don't tell us about faith. We don't want to know anything about Jesus Christ. We want to live what we, like we want to live and we just don't want to hear about anything else. And the yoke of Christ upon you, it won't be the kind of hatred that put Jesus on the cross for our sins, but it'll be the kind of hatred that hurts you very deeply. And it won't be that they'll tell you that they hate you, but they'll ignore you and turn aside from you and you won't have friends in there. But I want to tell you, this is what the yoke of Christ does. The yoke of Christ may cost you your old friends. Do you know that? You're a real Christian? Let me tell you, it'll cost your old friends. They just aren't going to stay around. Anyone who bears the testimony for Jesus Christ, the old friends won't stay with them anymore. It may cost you loved ones. That's possible too. It could cost you that. The yoke of Christ is a costly yoke. It restrains us. It holds us. It bonds us to Jesus in a special way. He's our burden bearer. The yoke of Christ is easy, it's true, but it is a yoke, and it's a restraining power to keep us from sin. And that yoke of Christ gives us a yearning for his word. A desire for it because we're part and parcel with him and there is the yearning for that word which can feed our souls all these things that yoke of Christ does that yoke of Christ will impart to you his passions for the souls of men all these things you see become part and parcel of us because we are members of his body of his flesh and of his bones and he then expresses it in this way it's telling the same thing in another way I'm putting my yoke upon you you're part of my body 
You're my bride. You're the sons of God. You're part of the very family of God. Ye are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. You see, in every facet, he is telling us that we have been brought together with him in this faith in him as Savior. And it's going to cost us something. Anyone who ever comes to Christ and doesn't expect it to cost them anything doesn't understand the salvation in Jesus. It will cost you. And it can cost you every friend you have in the world, and it can cost you even the love of a mother and a father. There's a boy here tonight whose father and mother put him out when he was saved for two solid years as a young boy because he came to Christ and took Christ's yoke upon him. So these are the costs. Ah, but God says here, it's good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Why? Because God knows what it's going to do for you. You don't, but God does. And therefore, he says, take my yoke upon you. Jesus speaks, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Matthew eleven, twenty-eight to thirty. Well, how blessed! I'm just going to mention the next verse quickly because it's important. It can tell you little young folks about it. Next verse, you notice what it says? He sits alone. Oh boy, that's rough. <laughs> that's rough, isn't it? Huh? To sit alone. He sitteth alone, and he keepeth silence, because he hath borne the yoke upon him. Now, sitting alone, may I say this, doesn't mean that you're going to be lonely. It will be a lonely road that you have to walk, but it won't be loneliness in the sense that the presence of God has left you. For as that yoke is born, as he says here, he sitteth alone. There is something about the relationship we have with Christ which is a very, very clear-cut aloneness. It's what I said before. It's that vertical faith in Christ and thinking of yourself as I'm the whole world to Jesus Christ. That's how much he loves me. If I was the only man who ever lived upon the face of the earth, Christ would have come and died for me. If I were the only descendant of Adam, Jesus would have died for me on this vast earth. That is how important I am to God. What is man that thou dost consider? Then the yoke doesn't become so heavy. And the sitting alone isn't so rough because the God of heaven is with you and will never leave you nor 
forsake you. Remember the verse I used this morning? When thy mother and thy father forsake thee, then God will take thee up. Ah, how wonderful. It may cost you everything, but you have a God who loves you. Trust him. Let us pray. Now, Father, we thank thee for the tenderness of thy word. Oh, we know it's exhortation, but it's also loving and tender. We're thankful that thou art all things to us. And we can only be complete in thee. So, Father, tonight we pray that we might recognize how important it is as the scripture tells us here, it is good for a man to take the yoke upon him when he is young. He may sit alone, but the God of heaven is with him. Rather be alone with God now and then with him for. All right, let us sing. Remember Wednesday night's prayer meeting at 7.45 p.m. There is a name I love to hear, I love to sing its word. It sounds like music in my ear, the sweetest name on earth. Oh, how I love Jesus. Let's sing the third one as the last and remember the words. It tells me what my Father hath in store for every day. And though I tread a darksome path, yield sunshine all the way. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus, because he first loved me. Receive the Lord's blessing, gracious Father. We thank thee for the tenderness of thy word tonight. Bless it to our hearts. And may we, with a real step of faith, say, Lord, I would take thy yoke upon me, for I do love thee. 
And Father, I'm so thankful that thou hast privileged me to be a son of God. May I truly trust thee and live in thy promises. Father, touch our hearts tonight. Draw us close to Christ. May our walk this week, the first part of the new year, be a more blessed one than ever before. And may we live to have victory through him that loved us and gave himself for our sins. We pray in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.